Welcome to the Generation Life Church Sermon Podcast. We are a life-giving church for everyone. We are multi-generational, multicultural, and exist to multiply by reaching our community both locally and globally with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that this message helps you in your walk with Jesus. Hey, good morning, Gen Life. How's everybody doing today? Man, praise God for that time of worship. Did anybody enjoy that time of worship? I got the microphone from Big Mike, and I feel like I needed a potholder to hold on to this thing. Hey, um, we are so glad that you're in church today. Is anybody glad to be in God's house today? Amen. Hey, if you're a guest with us here for the very first time, we just want to say welcome. Uh, my name is Keith, and I have the honor of serving as lead pastor here at Gen Life with an incredible team and teams. And uh, we're just so glad that you're here today. And um, we would love the opportunity just to be able to meet you and to connect with you. And uh, we've got a gift for you. So on your way out of this service, stop by the Orange Tent. Um, we'd love to put a gift in your hand, shake hands with you, and get to know you. And and uh, hopefully you'll want to connect with us. Hey, um, can we just put our hands together for all of our guests this morning? While you're in the celebratory mood, can we welcome everybody joining us online today? We're so glad that you guys are here with us as well. Hey, um, we've got a couple of things that are coming up. And um, tonight at 5 o'clock p.m., it is going down. We have Gen Life students, and uh, it's going to be at our house from 5 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. And um, it's for middle school and high school. So if you have any students that are in that age range, uh, we'd love to have them to come over. They always have food, always. Uh, and they are guaranteed to have fun. And before they leave, they will have a greater understanding of, the Bible, of the scripture, and, and, and of Christ. And so we'd love to see them out there. Um, shout out to Mark and Catherine Terrell. Can you guys just show some love who have been running point for Gen Life students? So we'd love to see them out there. Stop by the Orange Tent if you need the address or any information, and they'll be uh, glad to give it to you. Hey, um, does anybody know what Sunday after church is next week? Next Sunday. What is it? Come on, we got a Christmas parade, and it is for the Hillsborough Christmas Parade. Gen Life has a float, and um, we are excited about it. We've got a 22-foot trailer, I think. That thing is like a stretch. I mean, it just keeps on going and going. Charles Dickens theme, and it's a Christmas carol, and um, they are already building it out. It's going to be awesome. And so what we need is for everybody in this room to show up and to be prepared to either march in the parade or uh, just sit on the float, hang out, wave to folks. This is an opportunity for us to be able to be that salt and light um, that the scripture speaks about. You know, we think that it, we may have been one of the only two churches out there. And so um, it just allows our community to know that church is not a bunch of weird people, like we're actually, you know, normal people, and, uh, and we love Jesus, and it's an opportunity, you know, no strings attached to, um, to let them see that. And so why don't you come out and represent the church and represent Jesus at the same time? We'd love to see you there. If you need some info, stop by the Orange Tent once again, and uh, we'll make sure that we make that happen. Hey, um, is anybody ready for the Word of God today? I am incredibly excited because we are in the final installment of our series that we are calling God's Economy. 
And we've been studying from the scripture about finances and how we have been blessed by God to be a blessing to others for him. And we've been speaking specifically uh, in the past couple of weeks about the tithe, the 10%, tithe meaning 10th. And the foundational scripture that we've been looking at has been in Malachi chapter number three, and where God said, if you bring all of the tithes into the storehouse, that he'd open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that you do not have enough room to receive. And so we also saw that in the Old Testament, if they did not give a tithe, that there was a curse attached to it. And so we were able to uh, conclude with a little bit of study that when it comes to that tithe in Malachi chapter number three, in the Old Testament, God was speaking about it was a national tax that Israel had to pay in order to fund their theocratic government and to take care of the priests and the Levites. And when we cross over into the new covenant that Christ established on the cross with his blood, that we are um, not no longer obligated to pay a 10% tithe or tax, but that we are able to give it as a free will offering unto the Lord. And that if you do not pay your tithe, you are not cursed in the New Testament because it is a free will offering. But Christ, we saw that in Galatians chapter number three, verses 13 through 14. Anybody remember that? Where we learn that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law of sin and death. So we're not under that law. But in verse 14, we learn that the blessings of Abraham are still available if we continue to give unto the Lord, he'll give it back to us. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And so it's so cool how Christ has taken away the curse, but he left the blessing there. And he said, if you give the tithe out of your own free will, if you choose to do it, if, if you don't do it, you won't be cursed. But if you do, man, you can grab a hold of this blessing. And God said, he'll open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you do not have enough room to receive. And he can do that because he's Jesus and his blood is just that strong. Woo-hoo. Man, I am fired up because we are in part three of our series and we have a powerhouse coming to the pulpit to speak to you today. And you all know her, Molly Stillman. She is about to bring the word. And so Generation Life, church. I want you to make some noise. I'm talking about make some noise and and show your love to Molly Stillman as she comes and brings us part three of God's economy. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Woo! Yes, I'm using my Browns cup because we seven and three for like the one other person in this room who is a Browns fan. You are sharing my excitement. For 38 years, I've said this is our year, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, this is our year. Um, All right, well, if you, good morning. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and take them out, and you can go to Luke chapter 16. And as you are heading there, I'm actually going to give a brief introduction to the Bible for those of you in the room who may be new to the Bible. So the Bible is divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament gives us this record of God's chosen people, Israel, and it tells us about their need for a rescuer, a redeemer. They use the word Messiah. 
Now, the second part of the Bible, the New Testament, we find out that the Messiah is here and his name is Jesus, and that he is not just a prophet or a teacher or a really good person, but that he is God's own son, God in the flesh, that he was born of a virgin, he lived a sinless human life, and he died a sacrificial, brutal death on the cross. But the story doesn't end there, because three days later, he demonstrates that resurrection is is a promise and a reality, and this was incredible. Jesus' followers, his disciples, uh, they were so overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead that they went to the ends of the earth telling people that Jesus is the path to salvation, and that if you believe in him, you can have forgiveness of sin and the promise of eternal life with Christ into eternity. And we here at Generation Life Church, we preach that very same message today, and it is called the gospel, which means good news. And so today we are in the gospel of Luke, and it is one of the earliest accounts of the life of Jesus. Luke was a Gentile, just meaning he wasn't a Jew by blood. He was a doctor, and he was a traveling companion for the apostle Paul. And he states early on in his gospel account that the whole reason he's writing this stuff down is because he wants to write an orderly account of the things that have been fulfilled, meaning he's writing down eyewitness testimony of Jesus's life. And he's showing that the story of Jesus fulfills the plan of God and Israel and the whole world since before the universe was created. And so we're in Luke chapter 16. We're going to be in verses 1 through 15 today in the parable of the dishonest manager. And it is one of the most confusing and hotly debated of all of Jesus's parables. Get excited. You see, Jesus was a master storyteller, and many of his most famous teachings came in the form of parables. And these parables were designed to do much more than simply teach people. They were designed, he said himself, that his parables were designed to both reveal and conceal his message about the kingdom of God. And so here in this final week of this series of called God's Economy, we've been tackling the subject that everybody loves to talk about, which is money. <laughs> and so like Pastor Keith said, week one, he outlined the biblical tithe. He talked about what tithing looks like under the new covenant. We don't tithe to avoid a curse, but we tithe because we know we're blessed. And then last week, my husband, John, he talked all about that while tithing isn't required under the new covenant, that it is still the best thing for us to do because it is how God works in our hearts. And so today, I'm going to do my very best to put a bow on this series and get to the root of it all. Who do you trust? Where are you ultimately putting your trust? And I am going to be really honest with you. I mean, I'm always honest with you, but I'm going to be really honest with you. Um, this message is not easy for me to teach on for a variety of reasons. Um, but I have realized much more so in the last decade that this is actually a message that God has uniquely called me to. Um, and he has uh, therefore equipped me to teach on because God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Um, so I also have to address the reality that anytime we talk about money, people are going to have opinions, 
and feelings. And there is a strong to very strong chance that I'm going to say something today that is going to step on toes and it might make you feel uncomfortable. And unlike my husband said last week, <laughs> um, stepping on toes and making people uncomfortable is like literally my least favorite thing to do. <laughs> so I avoid it at all costs. Um, but my only job today is to be faithful to the text and I'm gonna do my best to do what it teaches. Is that okay? Yeah. All right, deal. All right, so here's the thing. It is interesting to note that 16 of Jesus's 38 parables have to do with money and possessions. Nearly 25% of Jesus' words in the New Testament deal with biblical stewardship. Our culture, the world, loves to talk about money. The pursuit of money and possessions and success and wealth, but the whole thing with the upside down kingdom of God is that is not what God teaches. That is the opposite of what the world teaches. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to dive into this scripture. Father, I need you. We need you. I don't know uh, what people came in today expecting. Uh, but Lord, we are expecting you to move. We didn't come here to be entertained. We didn't come here to, to have, you know, just, uh, to just get our, our, our fill in and check a box for the week. We came in to be changed by you and your word. Lord, uh, I know that this is a message that you've called me to, and Lord, I just ask that you would equip me for it. If there's anything that is in my notes or anything that just needs to fall away, Lord, let it fall away. Lord, uh, my job is just to be obedient to you. May you increase as I decrease. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so we're going to dive right in. Verse 1. Uh, now he, this is Jesus speaking, said to the disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. 
And he told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so what's going on here? So our audience is of this parable is the disciples, but we know that the Pharisees are there. So they are overhearing all of this. So Jesus is speaking to both of them because Jesus is fully aware that the Pharisees are there. And we've got two main characters in this parable, the rich man and the manager. Now, the rich man, he is not good or bad. He is a neutral party. The manager is a guy who works for him and essentially is in charge of running his estate. And he is a trusted steward for the rich man who had the legal authority to make financial decisions and conduct business on behalf of his boss. And we don't know exactly what he's been doing wrong, but essentially the rich man, he finds out that the manager has been wasting all his money and possessions. And so he goes to the master and he's like, dude, you're, or he goes to, excuse me, he goes to the manager and he's like, dude, you're losing me money. And so you're either crooked or you're really bad at your job. So either way, gather up all your belongings in like an old paper ream box, button up any loose ends, turn in your TPS reports because you're fired, okay? And so the manager is like, oh, shoot, I'm fired. What am I going to do? I'm out of a job. I've had this cushy life and I am definitely not cut out for manual labor and ain't no way you're going to see me begging in the streets. But I got an idea. I've got a few hours here left on the job. So I'm going to call up each of my boss's clients and I'm going to settle their debts. That way, when I need something, they're going to remember me and they're going to be indebted to me. So he is focused on securing his future well-being. And so the manager calls up each one. He's like, Frank, I like to name people. It helps me visually so, or mentally. So uh, we're, we're, calling, we're calling this guy Frank. He's like, Frank, how much do you owe my boss? And Frank's like, $100,000. And the manager says, all right, how's about you write out a check for 50K right now, call it even. Well, Frank tickled pink because now he's debt free. So the manager goes and he does this with every single person who owes his boss money. And so now those people feel like they owe him, right? And then in a couple of weeks when he's out of a job, he might need a place to stay, he can call him up and be like, remember, remember who took care of you? (laughs) So, I mean, what about us? Like if we were to find out that our current reality was coming to an end, wouldn't it be wise of us to use whatever moments we have left to prepare for our next reality? But verse eight is where the twist in the story comes in. Verse eight says, the master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly for the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. So clearly this manager has a history of being dishonest. It's what got him fired. But in the first part of verse eight, the master sees what the manager has done and he praises him because he's acted shrewdly, meaning that the manager was able to understand and to judge his situation and then use that understanding of the situation he was facing to his own advantage. And so instead of taking this dishonest manager to judge Joe Mathis, you know, the, the master is like, you know what? Good job, Carl. I like to call him again. Carl is what I'm envisioning the manager's name. And he's like, you know what, Carl? I like your thinking. Not bad, you're still fired, but good job. 
So there are a variety of interpretations for why specifically the master is praising the manager. And I actually went down a really long rabbit hole on this and I promise I'm actually not gonna do that to you. Um, But the point of it is that the manager had the foresight to anticipate his financial needs after he was fired. And he used his financial expertise to make friends for himself. But then in that second part of verse eight, Jesus refers to the children of this age. Those are the people of the world, people of the darkness, unbelievers. And what Jesus is saying is that they're more shrewd in dealing with the world. The people of the world, newsflash, are gonna look like the world. They're gonna behave how the world behaves because they haven't been transformed by the kingdom of God. And so they often show more concern and even skill in taking care of their earthly well-being. But the children of light, those are believers. Those are the people who have been transformed by God, and those people are going to behave differently. Now remember, this is Jesus telling this story, and so it almost seems to contradict what we know from other parables that Jesus has told. But what he's doing is really specific because he's comparing and contrasting the way that believers and unbelievers behave. So I wanna dig in a little bit more. As he continues in verse nine, he says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? I actually love the way the message translation puts these verses. It says, now here's a surprise. The master praised the crooked manager. And why? Because he knew how to look after himself. Streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They are on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right, using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival, to concentrate your attention on the bare essentials so you'll live, really live, and not complacently just get by on good behavior. Oof. Jesus went on to make these comments. If you're honest in small things, you'll be honest in big things. If you're a crook in small things, you'll be a crook in big things. If you're not honest in small jobs, who will put you in charge of the store? So in this incredibly mysterious way, Jesus is saying that our faithfulness with our resources here on earth, how we use our worldly wealth to advance and further the kingdom of God through our generosity, through our giving, through our tithing, through caring for our neighbors, that's gonna determine our responsibility level and enjoyment level in the life to come, being faithful with what you have now so that you can be trusted with more later. To be shrewd like the world, but for kingdom purposes. See, the point of this parable is not to go cheat people out of money, okay? We see that the manager, in the end, he's still fired. But he didn't let money distract him from this even greater goal of securing his future. He downgraded money to an instrument in service to a greater cause. He didn't allow money to distract him from what was most important, which was people and relationships. Because remember, it wasn't even his money to begin with. 
Everything we have is not ours. Everything that we have was God's first. The resources that he has given to us, he has entrusted us to steward. You and me, we are stewards. And what is a steward? What does that literally mean? A steward is someone who temporarily possesses and is trusted with what someone else owns. And then they have to give an account for what they did with it during that time. A steward is not an owner. A steward is a manager, but the possessor, the person who owns it, looks at what he has and says, what do I want to do with this? While a steward looks at what they have and asks, what does the master want me to do with this? And so I'll ask you, is this how you see your resources? Do you see your resources as fundamentally yours Or do you see them as fundamentally God's? Now, this is between you and God, okay? You don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to come tell me after church. This is between you and God. If you see your resources as fundamentally yours, you're gonna ask yourself the question, how much of this do I have to give to God so that I won't feel guilty and God won't curse me? But if you see your resources as fundamentally his, you're not going to ask yourself about 5% or 10% or 20%. You're going to ask yourself about the 100%. What does God want me to do with 100% of my resources? What are the eternal purposes that God gave me these things for? Now, I want to say this. I think this is really important. Guilt and shame are not of God. Those are of the enemy. And my goal today, 100%, is not to ever guilt or shame you. If you feel guilt or shame, that's of the enemy. Now, you may feel convicted. That's different. Conviction is of the Holy Spirit. Conviction leads to heart change. I actually love the way that Pastor Louis Giglio puts it. He says, condemnation is born out of guilt, whereas conviction is born out of grace. Condemnation leads us to conceal, to hide, whereas conviction prompts us to confess. Condemnation leads us to feel remorse, whereas conviction leads us to repent and to turn our lives around. Condemnation convinces us that we try harder, we're going to get forgiven, whereas conviction leads us to surrender. In condemnation, we will fail every single time, but conviction leads to transformation in our lives. And so in verse 13, Jesus really gets to the heart of this whole thing, and he says, no servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so you probably recognize this verse from Matthew 6, 24, but there's something really important that we have to look at here. The word that Jesus is using here in verse 13, it isn't money. It's not God and money. Money is actually a very bad translation of that word. He's using the word mammon. And he says it three times throughout this parable, the word mammon specifically. Verse nine, he says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly mammon. Verse 11, so if you have not been faithful with worldly mammon, who will trust you with what is genuine? 
13, you cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot, not you should not, but you cannot, you are unable to serve both God and mammon. And so if you are like me, when I started digging into this, you're like, what's mammon? I have no idea what that is. Um, So mammon is a uniquely Aramaic word. That's the original language that this was spoken in. It's a uniquely Aramaic word that refers to riches or to wealth. Money is just a bad translation of it. But the root of that word, y'all always know how I like to be like, the root, you know, the Greek, you know, my big fat Greek wedding, like give me a word, any word. But this is Aramaic, so I can't actually do that because it's not Greek. Um, But the root of that word literally translates to that what is trusted in. Mammon comes from the Syrian god of riches, the spirit of mammon. Mammon was one of the top eight spirits that was worshiped by Babylon. And so uh, for those of you who are individuals, I have a couple of pictures of the god of mammon. And so uh, this first one, you can see that this woman, what is she doing? She's worshiping this God. And what is he doing? He's literally holding out a bag of money behind her. Look at this second one. So this is a depiction of the God of Mammon, of Babylon. And he has this husband and his wife, and he has his hand on this woman's head and his foot on the husband's back. He literally has them in bondage. And so Jesus is using this really specifically because the Pharisees and the disciples, they know about mammon because their people were enslaved by Babylon and in exile for how long? Anybody know? 70 years. And so they were enslaved by these people and they watched the Babylonians worship and sacrifice to the God of mammon, to the spirit of mammon. They would sacrifice their children to the spirit of mammon so that in the hopes that God would bless them financially. And so Jesus using this word here is really intentional. He's referring to this personified spirit. This is a false God of wealth or worldly possessions that stands in competition to God. You see, mammon promises everything that only God can give you. Mammon will promise you peace and prosperity and health and comfort and joy, but mammon is the most wearisome tyrant on planet Earth. And mammon has our culture in bondage. And there's probably uh, each of you that fall into one of three camps. So either you fall into the first camp, and the first camp is you know that this is an issue for you you know that your wallet, your finances, your bank account has you in bondage. And then there's others of you that fall into this second camp. And that second camp is, this is absolutely an issue for you, but you're actually lying to yourself about it. You don't think it is. And then there's those of you in a third camp where this issue at one time gripped you, but you've been set free from it. Notice I didn't point out a camp where there's, this has never been an issue for you. If you think you might fall into a camp where this has never been an issue for you, you're probably in camp too. <laughs> Remember I said I was gonna step on toes, I'm really sorry. Okay. Let me ask this. 
Have you ever said something to the effect of, whether out loud or in your head, I'd be happier if I made more money? Or I could help people like if I had more money. Jesus never once said to anyone that money was the solution to their problem. Not one time. Because if money can fix it, it's not a problem. Or how about this? I, well, I'd give more if I had more money. I'd tithe if I had more money. I'll say it. If your attitude is that you don't need to be faithful with the little, you ain't gonna be faithful with the more. Luke 16, 10, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. Matthew 25, 23, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share in your master's joy. Matthew 25, 29, for to everyone who has more will be given and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. If you won't tithe when you make $30,000, you're not gonna tithe when you make 300. I'm just gonna say it. Or maybe you say to yourself, well, I either like, really need God to come through in this situation or I need more money. Well, I'm gonna say to you that, if you get more money, suddenly you don't need God. So you see, these are the questions that the God of mammon, that Satan wants us to be asking because that is the worship of mammon. That is who you are putting your trust in. But let me make something super clear. Money itself is not evil. Money is neutral. Money is a tool. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Loving and serving money is the issue. Placing money in the place where God is supposed to be is the problem. Remember, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Now, God and money can both be in your life, but you can only find security and peace and happiness in one of them. The way to serve God rather than mammon is to put your resources to the service of others and to the kingdom. So let me ask, who are you going to serve? And remember, like Pastor Keith and John said, this is fundamentally, this is a heart issue. But I also want to make something clear. You cannot buy your way into heaven. You cannot. You cannot buy your way into the kingdom of God. Only Christ in his poverty can do that. You can be saved and not tithe. You can also tithe and not be saved. But I also believe, and this is me speaking, I believe that you cannot be an active disciple of God without dealing with this. Because this issue gets at the heart of what you love and what you worship like nothing else does. Like nothing else does. If you look at every trouble and industry in this world, sex, drugs, human trafficking, what is at the root of it? Money. Money is at the root of every sin issue in the world. The porn industry, this is not in my notes. The porn industry is a billions of dollar industry. And they are literally begging for you to give them more money. And they are creating systems in your brain that make you addicted to it so that you will just continue the cycle over and over and over again. Money is at the root of it. 
Money is at the root of it. And so how you handle your money is a direct reflection of your spiritual condition. Show me your bank account and I'm gonna show you how much you love God. And it's not about the amount. I'd love to tell you the story about the woman with the two coins. It is not about the amount. Because again, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. It is about the heart. See, James gets at this in James chapter 2, 14 through 18, where he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. Your works don't save you. Your giving does not save you. But it is a direct reflection of what is taking place in here at a soul level. It is the evidence of what you trust in. Remember, mammon means that what is trusted in. So who do you trust? Where are you putting your trust? And like I said at the beginning of this message, uh, this is not easy for me. But I can preach this message because I have lived this message. So if any of you were here back in March of 2022, I gave my full testimony. Um, this is a great plug for the Gen Life Sermon Series podcast. If you want to go back, you can go back to March of 2022 and hear the whole thing. Um, I'm not going to rehash my whole testimony, but for those of you who maybe have joined us, a lot of you have joined us since March of 2022 and that might, that might not know my story. Um, for years and years and years and years, I was worshiping the spirit of mammon. Mammon had me in such bondage and I was blinded by it and I could not see the light. I grew up not knowing the Lord and while we had a whole lot of love in our home, there was, a, there was not a whole lot of money. <laughs> and after my mom died, I, saw, I sought comfort and solace in the thing I thought I could control, which was money. And what I quickly, quickly realized was it was actually an illusion of control. I was actually out of control. And then when I turned 21, I received on my 21st birthday a surprise inheritance from my mom's estranged family's estate for nearly a quarter of a million dollars. I know, if you don't know this part of my story, it's a doozy. We can talk after church. Um, and so suddenly, overnight, overnight, I went from having no money to lots of it. And I was like, this is gonna fix it. And so I did everything that I wanted to do. I made a series of grossly irresponsible financial decisions. Grossly irresponsible. Y'all take a 21-year-old on her 21st birthday with no emotional tools, and I was, woo, it was fun. It, I thought it was fun. <laughs> But I spent money and I spent more money and I did it all in the name of just like doing what felt good. Because I had wished for so long, I'd wished for so long for lots of money, but in a shocking turn of events, it didn't fix it. 
And in fact, it only accelerated my downward spiral to rock bottom because that is what mammon does. Mammon only makes empty promises. And so less than two years after I received that quarter of a million dollar inheritance, I not only had blown it all, I was $36,000 in consumer credit card debt. I could not make the minimum payments on my card. I couldn't pay my rent. I couldn't uh, scrap up enough money to, make, uh, to eat, to buy gas. I was beyond broke. I was alone in every sense of the word. Not a single soul in my family knew what was going on, not my friends, not my roommate, no one. Because I was so ashamed and I was embarrassed and I was crushed and I was suicidal because I saw that there was no hope, that I had no hope. But you see, the, the, the issue was a lack of money in my life wasn't actually the problem. My problem was that I was in need of a rock to stand on. I was in need of a firm foundation. I was in need of a savior. I was in need of Jesus. And so came my moment of reckoning, September 26, 2010. I stepped foot in a church for the very first time. And I heard the gospel for the very first time. I had no idea what the gospel was. And within a month, I heard a sermon on tithing. And it was like that exact sermon had been written for me. I realize it's a really selfish way to look at it, but I was a baby Christian. So y'all just go deal with, deal with me, okay? But it's because I, I thought the thing that I was managing, the thing that I thought I'd been entrusted with, it was now gone. And so I was being called to something new and to something greater. It was my moment of reckoning. Each of us have a moment of reckoning that we are going to have to face at some point in our lives. And after more of a, than a decade of walking with Jesus, I've had so many conversations with people who are believers, and I asked them how they came to faith. And for some people, like my husband John, like he, they grew up in church their entire lives. They've known Jesus their whole lives. But for him, it was a moment of making his faith his own. Other people, they might have a moment of reckoning when they hit rock bottom with drugs or with alcohol. And there's a come to Jesus moment where they're like, something has to change. For other people, maybe your faith came through relationship with a friend or family member or somebody who prayed for you or mentor and who told you about Jesus. So it could be this moment of time, this prayer you pray where you change and you turn your life over to Jesus or perhaps your story is more of a gradual, slow heart change. But here's the thing, trusting and serving God Trusting in God and God alone for our safety, our security, our provision, our joy, our identity, it has to involve surrender. You know surrendering your heart to God and surrendering your mind to God and maybe even surrendering your body to God, you also gotta surrender your wallet. The wallet for people almost always comes last. But see, for me, it was the opposite. For me, I had to learn how to trust God with my wallet, which is kind of bizarre. It's like a really bizarre way to go about it. But I believe with every fiber of my being that God meets us where we are. And in 2010, that's where I was. I was in bondage to the spirit of mammon. I was consumed with thoughts about money. Every decision I made had financial implications, and it was exhausting. And so I started tithing when it literally made no financial sense. John and I were dating, and I remember I took my spreadsheet to him, and I showed him all my finances, and I showed him my bills. This guy has tithed his entire life, and I showed him that spreadsheet, and he was like, I don't know how you're going to do this. Like, even he was like, the math is not mathing. 
okay? <laughs> but I said, no, this is, I have to change because I was convicted. I wasn't condemned anymore. I was convicted. And so I gave, as I decided in my heart, not reluctantly or compulsively, but cheerfully. Because from the moment I let go and I began to trust him in this area of my life, the moment that I made a decision to serve God and not mammon, everything for me changed. And so here is the thing, is I don't know where each of you are today. Every single person that walked in this room is carrying something. Your load might be kind of light, or it could be really, really heavy, and stepping through those doors could have been the hardest thing you did. But you made a really great decision to be here today. I don't know if you've been walking with Jesus your entire life, or I don't know if you're new to the faith, or you might barely even know who he is. But just like the shrewd manager who found out he was losing his job, I'm here to tell you, in essence, you're losing your job too. For many of us, the worship of wealth is one of the many things that have kept us from accepting the invitation to the upside-down kingdom of God. And so this is your moment of reckoning. This could be your moment of reckoning. Again, I don't know where you are. I don't know your stories. But what are you going to do with the time you have left? Because our lives are so short in the grand scheme of eternity. What legacy are you leaving? What kingdom are your resources pointing to? Who do you trust? And I can tell you from personal experience, trusting God is the best decision that I ever made in my entire life. I would not be standing here today had I not turned my life over to Jesus Christ. I would not be here today. I am a walking, living testimony to the life change that can happen when you say yes to him. And so wherever you are, whatever your situation, there is hope in Jesus. It is never too late. Remember, you cannot buy your way into the kingdom of God. You cannot earn your way into heaven. You can't do enough good things or give enough money. Literally, all you have to do is realize that you can't do this on your own and you are in need of a savior. And so I don't know where you are. And so um, I'm going to pray. And uh, we're going to do the whole heads bowed, eyes closed thing. We're just going to pray this out. Um, and I'm going to pray over each of you that are in this room. Heavenly Father, we're here. And right now, Lord... You know, in your all-knowing power, you know the hearts and the minds of every single soul that is sitting in this room. You know the hearts and minds of every single soul who is watching online. You know the hearts and minds of every single soul who will listen to this podcast or watch the video later. You know their hearts and minds, Lord. You know where they are. You know if they know you or not. Lord, I ask, I pray right now for the person who has known you their whole lives. What a blessing, what a testimony to grow up in a home, to know you their entire lives. Lord, I ask that you would just continue to work in their hearts. They're not perfect, but you are, God. And would you just speak to them in whatever areas of their lives they might be white-knuckling, 
Lord, would they release that area to you? Would they surrender that area to you? May they feel convicted but not condemned. Lord, I pray for the person who's maybe a new believer, who's been walking with you a short time. The sanctification process is hard, it's painful, it's not easy. And I pray that you would just continue to show them grace and mercy. Would they just, every day, even when it's hard, would they pick up their Bible? Would they open it up and just ask to hear from you? Would you continue to work in their hearts and their minds and their souls so that their, their lives can be a walking testimony, that others may see the change that you've made in their lives? And Lord, I pray for the person today who doesn't know you. I pray for the person in this room or watching online or listening to the sound of my voice at some other time that does not know you, Lord, that has not accepted you as Lord and Savior. God, may this be their moment of reckoning. Maybe they were like me, where their wallet, their spirit of mammon had them in such bondage where they were consumed with thoughts of money and where are the bill's gonna get paid and how am I gonna do this and how am I gonna do that? Lord, would they surrender it and trust in you? Lord, it's not gonna be easy. They're not gonna say yes and start bathing in money. That's not how this works. May they know they can't buy their way into the kingdom of God, but Lord, may they know that you know their hearts. You can see their hearts. And Lord, I just ask that you would transform them. Would you convict them? Would you fill them with the Holy Spirit? And um, if you're that person today, you don't know Jesus, just pray this simple prayer. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need a firm foundation to stand on. Lord, you are enough for me. I can't do this on my own. I've got to release the heavy burden that I am carrying. And Lord, today is my moment of reckoning. And Lord, I turn my life over to you. Lord, I believe that you came to earth, that you are God's son, that you lived a sinless human life. I pray that, um, I know that you, you died for me in my place. I know that three days later you were raised from the dead, that you defeated light, or you defeated death so that I can have life with you for eternity, God. Praise God. Lord, I know that from this point forward, it's not gonna be easy, it's not gonna be a cakewalk, but God, I know that life with you is way better than life without you. Lord, I thank you for your grace, for your love, and for your mercy. We have decided to follow you, Lord, and when we decide to follow Jesus, there is no turning back. There is no turning back, because you are enough for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Generation Life Church Sermon Podcast. We pray that this message inspired, encouraged, and challenged you in your walk with Jesus. Join us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. in person at Orange High School or online via our YouTube channel. For more information about Gen Life or to connect with us, visit generationlifechurch.com.